Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'd like to vote for Richard Nixon's head in a jar. Please, please can that happen? Yeah. I'm, I'm all for that. Is that. Can you make that happen, Hannah? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm three Disney films from the finish line. One, word to, de- one word to describe your emotions right now. Elated. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and I am part woman, part lemsip. Oh. Later on, Tracy Thorne tells us about her life as a teen in suburbia, as charted in her beautiful, relatable new book, Another Planet, which is part memoir, part anthropological study. I talked to author Kate Thompson and the inimitable Mari about life <laughs> in the East End for women during World War II, and Kate's new book, The Stepney Doorstep Society. Oh, my word. In Jenny of the Blocks, I'm talking about Six Nations, among other things. And I do Disney's Fantasia. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Just gone into the death stare mode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm still not recovered. But first, empty shelves, brass monkeys and sleeping bollocks. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we've barely time to tell you that Sarah Sanders thinks God wanted Donald Trump to be president. 2019, people. 2019. I actually follow God on Twitter, at the tweet of God, and that is categorically not what he's been saying. He, she, it is also staying very quiet on Brexit, presumably because even they don't know what the hot shite is going on. As we record, there are just 53 days to go until Brexit. Oh, I feel a bit sick. And the EU and the UK are still unable to agree a deal that will avoid the return of a hard border in Ireland. Stephen Barclay, a.k.a. Brexit Secretary 384... Never heard of him. (laughs) I have never heard of him. I mean, I just immediately wiped that name from my head because it'll be a different one. Oh, now, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Brexit Secretary number 385 is in charge of trying to put cats back in bags. But given we've been here before and already had ideas that are now being reconsidered soundly rejected, he must surely be aware that the bags are paper thin and the cats are cunts. Jacob Rees-Moggy, I'm looking at you. Meanwhile, a number of big names in business last week warned MPs that a no-deal Brexit could lead to empty shelves. By big names, I mean Sainsbury's, Asda, Lidl, The Co-op, McDonald's, KFC, M&S and Pret-a-Manger. Even Waitrose, darling. But let's not listen to them. Let's listen to some generic, claiming to have lived through the war baby boomer being vox popped by the BBC. Because his view that it'll do us good to go without because it'll remind us what we had is just as valid. Even if he doesn't seem to understand that food poverty is already a thing. Mm. Even if he's metaphorically driving a bus with the slogan, hard Brexit, like dry January, but for food. And for 40 fucking years. How do you even tackle that mentality? Short of punching him in the balls and saying, that's to remind you of what it was like when you weren't being punched in the balls. You are welcome. The good news just kept coming as car manufacturer Nissan announced that it would move the production of its new X-Trail model to Japan instead of Sunderland as was planned. In a slightly ironic twist, given Sunderland voted 61% in favour of leaving the EU... The company explained in a letter to workers that uncertainty around Brexit made it difficult for businesses to plan for the future. Heard enough about the sunlit uplands yet? Well, as reports arrive that there are plans to remove the royals from London if civil unrest breaks out post-Brexit, us commoners got to ponder what we're going to do with our shit. 
Since a hard Brexit could mean we can no longer export the problem, predictions were we'd have huge piles of rotting waste funking up our green and pleasant land. Mm. Ironically, this vision was instantly dismissed as Project Fear by exactly the same demographic who write to their local papers to bemoan <laughs> fortnightly bin collections. Never mind, we'll still have flowers, right? Well, maybe in flower zoos. The appearance on Sky News of a florist who said a no-deal Brexit would destroy her business, but that she wanted it anyway, <laughs> sent me down a wormhole in which I learned that 70% of our flowers come from Europe. So you can probably work out the rest. Because this is 2019 and we can't have nice things. Oh, God. oh dear. And all businesses might expect that uncertainty to continue, according to Humanity Vacuum Jeremy Hunt. In news that will surprise literally no one, Jezza spoke up last week to suggest that this might all go on for a bit longer, since March the 29th is quite near and progress is not. Mm. What, really? You don't think we're adequately prepared for this? Yes, and I had forgotten he was Foreign Secretary too. But at least Teabag's got her best guys on it. Nope, nope, sorry, wait. Twat. Curious as to what the rest of Europe is making of this shit show? Oddly enough, it appears to be losing patience, particularly with the backstop move. In France, President Macron has already said no to any backstop. Spain is lobbying to put the question of Gibraltar back on the table should the withdrawal agreement be reopened. The Netherlands seems to just be waiting for British Parliament to implode. Italy's warning the UK is about to fall into an abyss. Germany's calling it, quote, nothing less than the biggest political crisis on the island since World War II. Yet that's Germany bringing up the war. And the Irish Times has taken to explaining the backstop via cricket analogies, so clearly needs a cup of tea and a lie down. And as if there's really not enough to make you want to put on a cardigan and 19 pairs of pants and run through the streets screaming, here comes Warwick University's frankly bullshit decision to reduce the sanctions taken on two male students last year. The pair were originally banned from the university for 10 years after they took part in a Facebook chat which discussed raping fellow students. One of the women named in that chat... Because, oh yes, they were discussing raping specific students, is Megan Wayne. She displayed some steel to call out the move via the BBC and protests have taken place at the university. If you too find it abhorrent that these men could be back in the lecture halls in September, like they didn't post, rape the whole flat to teach them all a lesson in a public forum, there's a hashtag, shame on you Warwick, because Warwick needs to have a word with itself. Insert word of choice here. Yikes. Fed up of bearing the contraceptive burden of the pill, lads? Well, yay equality, as participants signed up to undergo a trial for a pioneering new male contraceptive gel. Yeah, 80 men in Manchester and Edinburgh will apply the hormone-based gel to their arms and shoulders, no, I don't know why either, (laughs) every day for a year to assess its efficiency at preventing pregnancy and what the side effects might be. The gel, which is thought to be around 82% effective, which is... I don't know if I like those odds, to be honest. What's 18% between babies, eh? It's said to take a few months to kick in, at which point it sends the testes to sleep, according to an article by The Guardian, causing the user's sperm count to drop to almost zero. We can see them queuing up around the block for this one. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's been brass monkeys recently. Snow and everything. And, you know, it can make travel tricky and hands cold. But friend of the show, David Morrissey, nailed it with this tweet. Rule one, if you're not sleeping on the street tonight, you have no right to moan about the weather. And there are a lot of people sleeping on the UK streets, more than four and a half thousand. 
and that number is a 165% increase since 2010. Hang on, I hear you mutter. Didn't the government say there's been a 2% drop in homelessness figures across the country this year? You're right, they did. The lying bastards. Hands up if you're surprised those figures have been massaged. Susan, mate, put your hand down for fuck's sake. I was just wondering if those figures had been massaged with some sort of gel that gets rubbed <laughs> into its shoulder. Just on the oh, arms. God, the <laughs> thought of Hunt and Rhys Mogg and Johnson just rubbing gel into their shoulder. Oh, if only anyway. Rhys Mogg would. <laughs> he needs to stop. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, the government's snapshot calculations of rough sleepers, in which the number of people on the streets are counted on one night, are not considered by charities and local authorities to represent homelessness throughout the year because they don't take into account the many people sleeping rough who can't be seen to be counted on that night because they're hiding or taking shelter in a derelict building or getting themselves put in a police cell for a bit of warmth. So what can we do? Well, give a person some cash, buy them a coffee, a pair of thick socks, ask them what they'd like or need. Or, of course, crisis does great work, so you could give a bit of bunts to them or volunteer, and you will find them at crisis.org.uk. Anyone fancy some good news? Yes, please. Sort of. Oh, OK, you've, you've sort of already spoiled it. <laughs> um, Universal Pictures and MGM announced last week that they would become the first Hollywood studios to accept the Time's Up campaign's so-called 4% challenge. 4%? 4%, mate. The challenge takes its name uh, from a 2017 study that found just 4% of the highest grossing films of all time were directed by a woman. But does that mean the challenge hopes to whack an extra 46% onto that figure? Not quite. Oh. What it actually asks for is that studios commit to announcing one project with a female director in the next 18 months. So, I mean, I did say sort of. Just the one. Just the one in 18 months. Just the one woman. In 18 months, yeah. Okay. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we gather all the men to celebrate their work in getting that gender balance bang on. Because nothing says we're nailing gender parity like a photo full of men, right, lads? Right. Well, the United Arab Emirates posted pictures of the winners of awards for gender balance... Which featured no women, <laughs> because no women won an award. And yeah, yeah, I know, the United Arab Emirates, they're a fish in a barrel and I'm once more armed with a gun. Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, Dubai's ruler, said, We are proud of the success of Emirati women and their role is central to shaping the future of the country. Gender balance has become a pillar in our governmental institutions. Great speech, Moman, but last month your country was ranked 121st out of 149 countries overall in the World Economic Forum's 2018 Global Gender Gap Report and 134th in terms of economic participation and opportunity. That pillar of uh, gender balance there that you're celebrating is wonkier than the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Oh, hey, Birmingham. Get you, looking all capital of the Midlands. And we will be in you on March the 24th for a cracking event at the Town Hall as part of Podfest Birmingham, where we're joined by Jess Phillips MP, Beverly Knight and the boss, Sarah Millican. More info and indeed tickets can be found at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. But you better be sharpish as they are selling damn fast. Hello. We're joined by Tracy Thorne, musician and author of the new book, Another Planet, A Teenager in Suburbia. Tracy, hi. Hi. I should also probably mention that um, Mick 
and Hannah are also here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> the book Another Planet is a memoir about your suburban childhood. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? I was just going to write an essay, actually, called The Green Belt. I had this notion of writing something about the kind of the village I grew up in, which isn't really a village. It was like built just for commuters um, starting in the 1930s. And it's in Hertfordshire. And it's in Hertfordshire. Basically, originally, I was asked to contribute to um, this series of nature writing, you know, like where people write about some aspect of landscape or something, something in the countryside. And I said no, because I thought, I don't know anything about the countryside. What can I what can I write about? But it kind of it stayed in my head and I thought, you know, I did grow up somewhere and mm-hmm. I grew up in this suburban landscape, which is a landscape, even though it's, you know, a slightly scorned one. And I thought, well, maybe that could be a starting point. I could actually kind of try and write in the same kind of detail that people write about the natural landscape. I'm going to try and write about this place I did grow up. And then once I started writing, then it kind of grew as books do and it turned into something else entirely. And it started, you know, I started focusing on the, the people as well as the place. Can I ask, mm. more specifically, are you well in Letchworth, one of those? Uh, Brookman's Park. Oh, OK. It's the actual village, not a village. But yeah, very near all those places. Okay. By your own admission, it wasn't necessarily the most inspiring place. So what inspired you to write about this place? You know, I suppose that feeling that however much you may dismiss a place when you're growing up there and you maybe can't wait to get away, there is something about it that stays with you and that forms you. And an awful lot of us grow up in Mm. suburban kind of landscapes. Mm -hmm. And if we're all going to sort of be snooty about it and regard it as a place that we just don't talk about, then I thought that's a bit sad. And, you know, everywhere has things of interest about it. And I just thought I'm going to sort of peel back the layers and, you know, try and look honestly at it. And so, you know, I talk about all the things I did hate about it. But I also try and admit to how much it's kind of a part of me as well it's a bit like a sibling or something it's kind of like i think it's shit and i can slag it off but it's sort of mine yeah to do that too do you Absolutely. know what I mean? yeah yeah that's that thing about it being part of you yeah you know so you can criticize yourself as well can't yeah. you? you don't want anyone else to so i would probably defend brookman's park a bit if people were being very sneery and snooty about it because partly i'd feel i was defending my parents i think i would feel like going yeah but they one local celebrity from brookman's park has it produced any other? oh there must be more bob wilson i think was yeah. our great local celebrity the arsenal football player we, we moved around quite a bit when i was a kid so right. i don't necessarily yeah. have a hometown that I was there for a long Mm. time. But it just never leaves you, the Mm. way you react to stuff. I was going to ask, did you find things to love about it? Or Um, is that too strong a word? (laughs) It might be too strong a word. Although the honest answer is I did love it when I was a child, pre-teenage. You know, it was a lovely, cosy, safe little place to grow up. Um, I could walk to the shops, I could walk to my primary school, I could ride my bike and go and play in fields. So, you know, that's quite idyllic when you're a child. Mm -hmm. When I became a teenager and I wanted excitement and culture and nightlife, then it seemed like a nightmare. You know, it's also quite a bonding experience. The number of people who said to me, having heard about the book or read some of it, oh my God, that sounds just like where I grew up. I think, okay, so that's why you write about things, Mm -hmm. to try and articulate experiences that people have had yeah you write about your teenage diaries in it quite a lot I mean they're painfully familiar Mm. I was saying earlier I vividly remember a diary entry from when I was a kid that was I went to Woolworths and bought a protractor and like (laughs) it's important to know that day day. see my diary would have said I went to Woolworths didn't get a protractor I listed all the things I didn't manage to buy
I? What was it like going through those diaries again as an adult? It felt like stepping back in time a little bit. You know, the thing about diaries is they are so vivid because that was you writing at the time. You're not looking back with hindsight. Mm. It's not your adult self remembering. Um, It's literally that was what you wrote on that day. The weird thing is realising how much, even when you're writing a diary, you kind of edit you know, because there's some things that aren't in the diary, but yet I do remember, even some quite big things and especially sometimes difficult or upsetting things. I wouldn't write it down because, you know, again, probably being young, I didn't quite have the language for it. Um, I was worried my mum was reading my diary, so I was keeping secrets from it even then. I think that's really interesting because you get, if you see TV or popular culture's portrayal of diaries, it's kids pouring their heart and souls yeah. into it. And I, mine wasn't really like no. that either because there was always that risk that someone would find it. Yeah. It was more a catalogue of what I'd done. Yeah. My mum has the only diary I kept, 1983. I was given a diary for Christmas. It's got one entry, January the 1st. It says, watch Superman 2 and was sick. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. And that that's was it. Then I you got, gave, and then up. I gave up. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's actually getting off to a really good start. <laughs> I would have said, carry on. You've got... <laughs> Interesting that you say that you omitted quite a lot of things. You kind of censored yourself a bit in what you wrote. Was your creativity later on any kind of out? Outlet for that. I mean, one of the things I, I kind of realise when I go back and look at the diaries is that there is something in them that is at the heart of, of writing, which is that it's all about deciding what you do and don't say. Mm-hmm. It's not really about how how much is it the outpourings of your heart. It's a sort of it's a decision making process. What are you going to write? And, that, and that's that's the crux really of any writing. When I went back and realised that there were things I left out of the diary. I sort of thought, well, there's, there's all those funny things with writing, that it's about control and, you know, being able to shape your own narrative. Um, sometimes if something's happened that maybe you didn't like, there's an element of taking back control of that by not writing it down. You're almost writing it out of the story. Yeah. Did you like her? Who, me as a teenager? Not always. No. I, I tried to be quite honest as well and not just paint myself in a good light, you know, as this sort of glamorous, rebellious teenager. I mean, I've tried to leave in the things where, you know, I do something that's not cool. And I've also tried oh, to come leave on. in Tracy bits where I'm mean. Not cool. Yeah, I did lots no. of things that weren't cool. Can you give us an example? <laughs> you bought a lot oh, of waistcoats. I bought, yeah, waistcoats from the my mum's Freeman's catalogue as well. So probably not that cool. I love that you wrote that down. Yeah, and how much it cost. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't always nice. You know, I was unkind to friends sometimes. I was unsympathetic. I was self-obsessed the way teenagers are. It's a portrait of, of more or less, I think, what I was really like. So, no, I didn't always lie myself. I suppose I forgive myself because I was only a teenager. Yeah. And was suburbia always in the background of the diary entries? Does that come across as its own character? I think it does because it's there in all the details mm-hmm. about how difficult it was to get anywhere. We were forever waiting for buses Mm. and trains were always being cancelled and we couldn't get a lift somewhere. Um, And then we were always bored because nothing was happening. So there's this sort of undercurrent of frustration and being a bit trapped. And that's quite suburban, I think. If we'd lived in the city, you know, there might have been nightlife happening just around the corner that we could have walked to. Everything was a struggle. You talk a bit about other musicians and artists that have come from the suburbs, I guess. What do you think it is about suburbia that breeds so much creative output? It's becoming almost sort of commonplace, isn't it, to say that 
you know, people need to be bored to be creative. And I, I suppose there is something in that. I mean, I sometimes wonder as well whether being a little bit on the outside of things, which you are in suburbia, you're a little bit at arm's length from things. Maybe you sort of get the elements of cultural things that are happening and that influence you, but you're not quite at the heart of them. So you sort of develop in your own individual way. Maybe you become, you know, an artist who's got elements of those things that are happening, but you you get it a little bit wrong or you do it a little bit differently because you're not quite there at the heart of it. And so maybe that makes people distinctive. I guess a bit of the, you touched on this as well, sort of kicking back against that. Yeah, I think there is something in that, you know, when there is so little on offer. You know, suburbia can be incredibly claustrophobic and conventional and all the sort of twitching neck curtains and things. And I definitely felt that. And it made me want very much to define myself, you know, in opposition to that. So in a way, that's a spur, I think, to to being creative. Because you touched on a lot of different issues in the book, like class and parenthood and mm. all sorts of things. What did you think was the most interesting thing about the place and the sort of culture, I guess, looking back at it? I think it's that disparity between the suburban dream thing you know what it was meant to be and what it was sold as to people especially like my parents you know working class Londoners who'd lived through the war desperate to escape desperate to create this whole new world this new way of living that was going to be fantastic and And aspirational and safe and they they bring up their family there and how could it not be lovely Mm -hmm. and that in doing so that was a it was a bit of a prison that was being offered you know they, they they themselves became a bit trapped in the, in the whole aspirational thing as well. You know, they bought into this notion of having this dream home and this dream life and, you, you know, you'd have your three kids and they'd all turn out lovely and then then what do you do? You end up, you're not quite in the dream home. Ah, one of the kids is rebelling. You know, something bad's happening. You're sort of completely adrift. So I think that's what interests me about it is that, you know, the juxtaposition of supposed perfection and then, look, life is messy, isn't it, and complicated and... Suburbia is not very good at taking that on. People bring their their same problems with them. It's just a different location. Yeah. I, I grew up in a town that Milton Keynes was built right next to. And yeah. That was the dream that yeah. the, 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 the people were going to go there. And you look now, just a few generations on, the problems they've got with unemployment, with homelessness. And it was almost like a shiny city on a hill. And now it's... A, really in in a serious problem so you're right, right. there was a dream that was yeah. being sold of new towns yeah and it didn't always come through for people no would you go back there yeah, yeah. would you live in suburbia no no i don't think i could i mean honestly now i'm i'm so embedded in london i can't imagine living anywhere and actually the older i get the more i take comfort in there being lots of people around yeah. i really like mm. that and when i did go back to Brookmans park you know, as I say, I did feel at home there and it was very sort of cosy and familiar. But it was so quiet as well. Mm. I got slightly spooked. The name of the book is Another Planet. Mm. Does it feel that alien to you now? The title of the book actually comes from um, a quote from my dad, which he said about me. And in quite recent years as well, my <laughs> sister gave it to me. I'd actually almost finished the book and it didn't quite have a title. It had originally been called Green Belt, but I thought that was a bit vague. 
and I was chatting to my sister one day and we were talking about parents and how, you know, you don't quite understand them, they don't quite understand you. And she said, well, you know, Dad always used to say that about you. You know, I'd tell him something and I'd say, oh, Tracy's just done this. And it would be something really quite ordinary. <laughs> and he'd go, oh, Tracy, she's from another planet. <laughs> and you just think, oh, my God, you know. So, And I said to her, that's my title, isn't it? Because um, it works both ways. You know, to me, suburbia does seem a little bit like another planet, even though it's only half an hour away and I'm, it's incredibly familiar. Yeah. But also my parents actually had this weird version of me that they thought, I was from another planet, so... The book is published on the 7th of February and I assume is available from all good bookstores and indeed <laughs> online. Where can we find out more about things that you're doing around the book or, or follow you in general? Well, I'm always chatting away on Twitter. There's my website, tracythorn.com, which is a good place to go to for any up-to-date info and there's a little events section on there that talks about book well, readings. I guess you're probably going to end up in quite a lot of suburban towns. Mm, yeah. uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll run me out of town, probably. Pitchforks. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what they're going to make of me in Brooklyn's Park. <laughs> Are you going to Brooklyn's Park for it? There isn't a bookshop in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. I'm here at Penguin headquarters in London with author Kate Thompson and... Mari, a.k.a. Girl, Girl Walker. Walker. To talk about a brilliant new book that I've just read called The Stepney Doorstep Society. Honestly, great job. I absolutely oh, love this. Who doesn't you. love a book that opens with a woman? Hurling <laughs> a man with, with a hot potato. potato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was never going to open it any other way than that, was I? Let's but, be honest. <laughs> so let's start with that one yeah. there because she is called Kate Thompson. Yeah, she was yeah. your entrance to this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was really the reason I got interested in East End women in the first place because I had... Basically, I'd gone up to Bethel Green and I was researching for ideas for a book and I met these two lovely women, Vera and Cathy, from Bethnal Green and they told me all about the Blitz and they really opened my eyes to what it was like to be a woman in East London. They said, oh, but you, you can't write a book without featuring the Bethnal Green tube disaster. Now, I'd never heard of that and I suspect a lot of people haven't. No, I haven't either. So they took me down to Bethnal Green Underground and there was this tiny little sort of plaque devoted to the 173 people that died down there, which was about midway through the war. And I won't go into the ins and outs of it, but to praise it, basically, back then, Bethnal Green was not a working station, it was a, it was a shelter. And so there were hundreds of people queuing outside when an anti-aircraft rocket went off, and it caused, I wouldn't say a panic, but people pressed down to get underground. There was a woman carrying her baby who tripped on the bottom step, and it just caused this devastating pile-up. I mean, people just went down like dominoes. And with, I think it was within about 30 seconds, 173 people were asphyxiated, like crushed to death, mainly women and children. And I suppose really it was like kind of the Hillsborough of its day, and nobody, nobody really knew about it. I didn't know about it, certainly, because it was all, at the time, it was all hushed up by the government. Anyway, so there, there I am, and they gave me an order of service from a memorial service that they held each year for it. And there was Kate Thompson... And you know when you see your own name in a kind of line-up of the dead, you just it gets you know you have yeah. an instant sort of personal connection to it. So I thought, well, okay, I'm going to research this woman. I'll see what I can find out about her. And the awful thing is, before I started it, in my head she was a victim. I thought, oh, this woman's going to lead a pitiful life, and 
you know, in a kind of two-bedroom tenement. And she did, there's no doubt. She lived in one of the biggest slums in Bethnal Green in a place called Quinn Square. But when I found out about this woman, I was just blown away because she had she was a mother of nine and she was like basically the square's kind of chief female, if you yeah. like. She was the auntie. And, you know, she was the one that people would go to to lay out the dead, to birth new life, intervene in domestic disputes. She was like a warrior. She was a, a mighty woman and she led this three-week rent strike to reduce rents and raise living conditions in her area through the Blitz. She put out incendiary bombs on the roof. She helped nurse her neighbour's son through double pneumonia. There was nothing this woman couldn't do. So in my eyes, she, she sort of transformed from a victim to who she really was, which was the matriarch of the square. And so for her to die in such a preventable, pitiful yeah. way really struck me. And that was the catalyst that really got me kind of interested in East End women and really totally opened my eyes to to the nature of matriarchy in the East End and how powerful it was. You know, because I had no idea, I, I think like a lot of people, of the sort of richness and the complexity of women's lives back then and the way they operated within their communities to keep it running. And so that kind of opened the door, yeah. really. And from then, I was like, I couldn't meet enough women and, and hear enough stories. That, that little girl who got pulled out by Irish, she's my friend. Is she? Yeah, we went line dancing for years together <laughs> yeah. in June. She's still alive. She lost her mum and dad. She lost quite a lot in that yeah. disaster. Yeah. And we've we done a, a dance, a load of dance, and we collected a thousand pounds. I meant to show you the photo. Do you know one of them little lights on the, the memorial? Yeah. Well, that co- one of them lights cost a thousand pounds. Yeah. But there is a memorial yeah. now. Oh, yes, yeah, there is now. Yeah. I mean, 70 years on, it's taken them to, and it's, and it's all been done by like a small charity they've had no help no, no donations it's just literally yeah, standing on yeah. you know rain, rain swept high streets rattling yeah. a bucket it's taken the youngest one there was six six months yeah, old wasn't yeah. he yeah like i said that was the catalyst and that's i suppose what led me to mari's door literally Mari, you also did an advert in a newspaper. So I put an advert in my East End, or this is no, East I've End Live? No, I got it off of a board in... Um, oh, did you? No, where was a board? Over the library. Oh, I went, did you? Yeah, I popped in the library, because they had some photos of uh, all the olden days, and I popped in there, and there was this thing, and I thought, I'll try that woman. And yeah, I did. So she rings me up, <laughs> yeah, and she said, do you up. want to know about the East End of old? I'll tell you. Yeah. So I, yeah. up I rock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm walking down the street, and I can just... And I'd never met her before, and I just saw the address in the distance, and there's a woman out there, and she's scrubbing out her wheelie bin with big really one. hot, big old wheelie bin with hot soapy water. I thought, what's she doing? And then she, you didn't even say hello. She no. just said, why does no one clean out their wheelie bins anymore? <laughs> I thought, that's a good introduction to a woman. You know, years ago, if your curtains and your doorstep wasn't clean, you got evicted. You'd always see the old ones out. They used to fight one another, so you've got to get there always started about four in the morning cleaning their doorstep. It'd be white chalk or it'd be black um, orange ochre. And um, he'd come around and he'd look and his gutters were spotless. You could play marbles mm. in the gutter. And was but, it you um, said that if you yeah. were the last woman out on the street, so in the morning every woman opened yeah. their door and she was out on her hands. Oh, they used to scrubbing. have a needle with one another. If they, she was, they, she, she beat that one. <laughs> <laughs> Getting up at the crack of dawn. I have to say women seem good at multitasking. I was really oh. taken with the story of Peeling your veg. Oh, the, yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of the old Irish women, especially I think in the Jewish quarter of Whitechapel, yeah, yeah they would take their vegetables to the pub to peel, which is multitasking yeah. on new levels. Yeah. Isn't it? But, <laughs> yeah. I know my mother in law used to pop her peas in the pub. She used to take, get, did she? She used to, because they used to get their <laughs> shopping down the old road and then pop into the ship. And um, if they bought 
peas, they sit there popping them while they're having their Guinness. Yeah. I like the sound of that. In the book, you draw a comparison to Call the Midwife because you, it's it's the same geographical place, yeah. it's the same yeah. rough time Roughly frame. the same area, you're, yeah. you're talking about. Well, it's a bit more wartime based. But yeah. yeah. I think much like Call the Midwife, women had a really rough time of it. Oh, and God, yeah. we shouldn't take for granted the rights that we have now. Yeah. Most we have no idea now, I think. Yeah, I mean, free, safe, legal abortion seems to be the thing that's <gasps> most friend, shocking. My friend's mother was an abortionist. Was she? she? Yeah, she, and, um, she got caught. She's done about five years. Did she? Yeah. Really? Yeah, wow. Backstreet Because one of the women I interviewed in the book, her mum was... And this is it was the most interesting thing for me, I think. She was a child-minded by day, but she was also the street abortionist, probably yeah. like your mate. Yeah. Women just knew they went to her. And she wasn't like... I think yeah. abortionists are always painted as quite kind of shadowy, evil kind of underhand women but when mm. in reality they were just women with a hidden existence and they were not but they were known to everybody in the community and they were almost like doing a, a sort of public health service in a sense because what are you going to do if you're a woman with nine ten kids a lot of them you know, died though i mean i remember down our street my mum's street obviously our school we all stood outside and we wondered what was going on this woman had about i think she had about nine or ten kids and she just had an abortion and oh, everybody was outside. I can remember them taking them away, taking them away. The mum died, did she? Yeah, the mum died, yeah. I think it was about 11 child she was having there. And we it was outside the school and, of course, being kids, we just stood there and watched. All the kids was put out then. My sister had a little girl. Her mother had an abortion, she died. My yeah. sister Winnie had, had that little girl for about two years. Also, women didn't seem to know a great deal about their bodies. And your Listen. story of, oh, of yeah. being in labour was... Laura, when, I went, when, when I went in to have my baby, I had no idea that's where it came from. None <laughs> whatsoever. I always remember this nurse come and put, she put the screens around. She said to me, have you got any family? So I said, yeah. So I got two nans. I've got three sisters, got mum and dad. And she went, when are they going to teach these children who are having babies... And she sat there for about an hour teaching me. And when my sister came in, I cleaned her from head to toe. My sister. <laughs> <laughs> I threw at Jimmy. But you no. thought, didn't you, that that line... That yeah, I did. I had a brown line. I, I honestly, in gospel truth, I never knew that. And when my Winnie came in, I went, why didn't you tell me that's where babies come from? She, well, I thought you knew, she said. But this, when I was in labour, this elderly nun said to me, why are you fanning? I went, oh, my God. I said... I never knew that's where, and she, never know, said it went in that way, that's why I had to come out. <laughs> if you'd like to hear some more from Kate and Mari, and frankly, who doesn't want to hear more from Mari, the good news is they will be the subject of one of our two Sunday chops this weekend. In the other Sunday chops, I'll be talking to Olivia Potter Hughes of the National Union of Students in Northern Ireland about the current situation with marriage equality. If you're interested in buying Kate's book, it is called The Stepney Doorstep Society and it's available from this week in all good bookshops. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we pop the patriarchy in the sim bin for a jiffy as we discuss all things women's sport. 
And that's right, you may have guessed by my very subtle reference in the intro that the Six Nations is back, and England were off to a cracking start as they beat Ireland by a rather magnificent 51-7, and on Ireland's own home soil, in fact. Awkward. Actually, the England men's team did the same thing, though not with quite such a convincing scoreline. In the women's match, an impressive performance came from Katie Daly-McLean, who scored 16 of those points, while the likes of Emily Scott and Bryony Cleely were among the eight try-scorers. England finished in second place last year behind France, who also looked like they meant business against home nation Wales, who they took on in France, and were defeated by 52 points to three. France will be hoping for another grand slam this year of course and winding up a relatively miserable first round for the home nation scotland lost 728 to italy at home as italy came back from a draw at the half time break to inflict misery on their opponents in the second round scotland will play ireland on friday the 8th wales play italy on saturday the 9th and england will play france on sunday the 10th and that one should be a very interesting watch indeed now, you can actually watch some of these matches. The BBC will be showing Scotland v Ireland, Italy v Wales will be live on BBC Wales, and Sky Sports will be showing England v France. In fact, all of those England matches will be shown on Sky Sports. There's a lovely story this week. Athletic Bilbao set a new attendance record for women's football last week after a massive 48,121 fans turned up to watch them take on Atletico Madrid in the Copa de la Reina. The previous record, held by the same team, was 35,000 back in 2003. But not only that, this 48,000 figure is actually higher than the attendance of the men's league games at the club this season by a massive 2,000 people. So the club offered a deal whereby non-members could watch the match for just €5 while season ticket holders could go for free. And it just goes to show that, indeed, if we book them, they will come. And... I think that's a really good way of doing it. I've talked before on the podcast about the really excellent things that Manchester City are doing to try and get more of the people that would go and see the men's matches to go and see the women's matches as well. So, you know, it's it's totally possible to do and worth doing. So well done them. There were actually a few lovely stories this week. Uh, Back on a rugby tip, it's been announced that Old Trafford, home to those pricks Manchester United, but look, decent venue, I can't lie, I can't lie, will host the finals of the men's and the women's Rugby League World Cup in 2021. And meanwhile, back in football, Lewis FC, who you might remember we chatted about some time ago now because they'd announced that they were going to pay their male and female players the same amount. They have been campaigning for the Women's FA Cup prize money to be increased in order to increase the level of focus and seriousness paid to the women's game. Currently, less than 1% of the men's competition prize money, which is £30.25 million, is spent on the women's prize fund. Which is, yeah, well, I think that a source at Lewis was quoted by the Telegraph as having said, whatever way you cut the numbers, it's kind of nuts. We're not suggesting an equalisation of prize money immediately, but we do think there is plenty of scope for a very big increase. And you can't argue with that, can you? It's uh, nuts indeed. Anyway, that is all from me this week. Thoughts, opinions, please do tweet me. I am at Inspiragen, and I'll be back with more sports news next week. Hello, Mickey here, interrupting again, but to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. 
Hannah is at that Dunleavy and Jen is our Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy. What Disney did you do this week? This week I did the Disney that we've been dreading, the one that we've been putting off, the one that I suppose the only upside was, you know, no, there is no upside. Um, (laughs) The one I've been putting off, which is Fantasia, one of Disney's earliest efforts. I I want to say it's Disney's only film that's not for children because I can't imagine why children would be in any way interested in this. Yeah, I had seen it before. Oh, I thought I'd seen it before. I'd certainly seen some of it before. Um, I was dreading it because I thought it was dreadful. Um, but we can get into that later. I know you watched it, Mickey, because I actually watched it with you because I couldn't bear to watch this by myself. Jen, did you manage to fit all two hours and six minutes of this in? Fucking hell. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, she's got a face yeah. that I believe that to be the truth. Mm-hmm. That this face morning. says, oh, God, I watched it. Can I just say that the postman came round, he knocked on the door to deliver something while I was watching it this morning, and I was actually embarrassed when I answered the <laughs> door. <laughs> um, it's worth pointing out that halfway through watching Fantasia with Hannah, I just went, Hannah, have I died? <laughs> <laughs> Alas, no, it was still going. Hello. Did you like it? <laughs> Did I like it? Do you know what? If I'd watched it by myself, I think I would have hated it. The fact that I watched it with someone else meant it was quite fun to watch it because we were making jokes. And you actually did point out to me that, you know, in the olden days, there wasn't much to look at. So perhaps it wasn't fair (laughs) that I was judging it quite as harshly. But no, I thought it was tedious. Really tedious. Generous subjective, I think. (laughs) To, to, I mean, to try and explain it, if you haven't seen it, it's got one of the most, well, let's go back to that word, tedious setups ever. It's classical music it's it's cartoons made to coincide with classical music which i'm sure could be interesting in some way and i was saying to you i once saw some hot air balloons doing a display to classical music when they would like go up and down it was amazing no it was really worth watching so i mean fireworks famously made better by classical exactly but the thing is this is fronted by a man (laughs) called deems taylor who is apparently sinister quite an an institution in America, or certainly was at the time, he steps up looking like some sort of Nazi war criminal. Um, <laughs> and probably is, let's face it. To say the words, it is my duty to present this to you, and he makes it feel like it is a duty rather than it's in any way a pleasure. Basically, what he does is bore you into submission, and oh. then the music starts, and you're just so grateful that he stopped talking. I like uh, it when he tries to be funny. I didn't or- notice any evidence. Of- uh, okay, we may not have watched it. It might be worth saying there are several versions of this. Okay. As in, they have bits cut out of it. They've had bits put in. It's been they've re-released would, it. A they've lot re-released of times. it a lot. Why they've would re-worked they put more it. bits in? Why would they re-release it ever? But my my point being, unless there is a version in which a hand comes out the screen and gives you a thousand pounds, basically, I think it doesn't matter what version you're watching. This isn't exciting or great in any way. The first one where there's uh, the orchestra playing and then there's some fairies and some racist toadstools and some burlesque goldfish. That Have you got racist toadstools? <laughs> that was weird. And I just, sorry to interrupt because I know it's Dunleavy does Disney, but I was fascinated by this one and I did a little bit of a vox pop amongst friends and family and I asked them if they'd seen Fantasia and they all said yes. So my little brother who's 11 years younger than me, said, oh, I used to have a tape of it, which explains a lot about him and indeed why I know so much about it. And I said, what do you remember? 
the only section that anyone mentioned was like, oh, Mickey Mouse and the Brewsticks. Yeah. The Sorcerer's Apprentice. The Sorcerer's yeah. Apprentice well, bit. And I went, that is just one-eighth of this yeah. film. Well, we will get onto that because I think if anyone tells you they watched this all the way through as a child and liked it, it's like when someone tells you they've read Ulysses. It's a fucking lie. <laughs> it just, it hasn't like, happened. Like I mean, apparently this is the 23rd highest grossing film of all time. It's... <laughs> there was a war on, to be fair. Yeah, okay. But not of all time. <laughs> Let's go to Mickey Mouse then, because uh, the point of this was that they had this little animation. This is how it started. They had the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which was designed apparently, and this made me piss my pants when <laughs> I read it on, on, on uh, Wikipedia. It was decided as a comeback role for Mickey Mouse, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You know, like the wrestler for Mickey Rock. He was very method. He went to like country and joined the magic circle. Yeah. And, like, did a lot of swimming. It is undoubtedly the best bit in it because it's the least tedious bit in it. And I suppose it's relatively entertaining. And when it ended and I had to watch a load more stuff, I missed it. I wished it was the Sorcerer's Apprentice again. But... I think that's a bit like saying, you know, if you're at a shit buffet, like that, that something that isn't shit is se- seemingly better. Mick made a really good point about so, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. The Sorcerer's Apprentice, I reckon, is a cracking analogy for Brexit. So Mickey sets the brooms in motion, mm-hmm. will of the people. <laughs> it all starts to go terribly, terribly wrong because Mickey falls asleep on the job. And when he wakes up, he can't stop it, not at all. And I think The Sorcerer is the people's vote. Well, it's funny you should say that because the sorcerer is clearly not magic grandpa Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> because he actually stops Brexit. Yeah. So we'll just leave that there. I mean, the worst thing about this film is that halfway through it, it fucking ends and then starts again. Oh, my God. What the fuck? Oh, my God. How dare they make me think it was over? <laughs> they, 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 Not only do they all pack up in the orchestra, you watch them packing up, which is tedious. And you think this has to be the end because why would they have put the orchestra packing up? And then they come back for an encore, one of which involves My Little Pony dancing to Beethoven is the only way I could describe it. And something called the Centaurettes, who Mickey thought was a, a Motown band. Yeah. And then this thing at the end that's based on Dante's Inferno, in which there are several pairs of tits, which I never thought, like including full, full on tits. <laughs> They're like pressed up against the screen at one point, the tits in it. I can't. And then there's some, some, there's a moment of ill judged humour when some things fall over in the orchestra and everyone goes, ah, and it's, it's not funny. Yeah, that was odd. Yeah. The thing is, right, who the fuck has gone, what do kids love? Tchaikovsky. Yeah. (laughs) Like, who's done that? And then why have they gone, oh, we're done with the Tchaikovsky now. What else do kids love? Oh, yeah, Beethoven, that's right. What the fuck? Is Beethoven the dinosaurs? Beethoven is... Oh, I forgot the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs goes on. The Beethoven's the centurettes of My Little Pony. When the dinosaurs, that bit was apparently really controversial because they were a bit concerned the creationists might be upset, but also the music itself. It's all very weird, but there's a bit in it when I shouted, oh, thank fuck, we're at the amoebas. And I I actually started to think... It's it's the right of spring by Stravinsky. That's right. It went on for so goddamn long, I started to think that creationists might have a point. Yeah. You know, maybe it would be great if dinosaurs did just turn up 2,000 years ago. I remembered bits of it when I watched it because I did actually watch this in the cinema on one of the numerous times it was re-released. As and a punishment? No, I think it was like... you you've been stealing marshmallows from the shop again, Jen? I think it was just like, you'll have a lovely time. I didn't. Like, I actually remember 
being bored to tears at the time. And also, I was in the cinema, so I couldn't get up and walk away. Um, I was very much you stuck there. Did they lock you in in Essex? Like, I can't, like, when you're eight and your dad is projecting the film. Yeah, that will make it trickier. But I was thinking when I was watching it, yeah, little Jen, she didn't like this, did she? Why was that? Oh, it's because it's really fucking intense. Like, even the bits that don't look like they're actually meant to be intense. It's really fucking intense. I remember as a child thinking, like, oh, this is a bit sinister. I don't really like it. It's actually sort of scaring me a little bit. That is largely how I felt about it today. Yeah, yeah. plus that bit where, where they go, and here's someone we want to introduce you to, the soundtrack. Oh, God. What was that? That actually started to make me feel <laughs> like I might have a fit. There was something about it. I felt quite dizzy. It was partly because, obviously, I've had a virus that's made me dizzy. It was partly because it was actually causing the screen to flicker. And it was partly because I just hated it so much I wanted it to be over. That's when Deems was trying to be funny, Jen. He was. He was interrupting with the soundtrack. Oh, that was humour, was it? Yeah. Yeah. He was was relaxed as a frozen sphincter. Completely, like, void of any charisma whatsoever. Yeah, I called him a fun sponge several times. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, him and Jeremy Hunt. My one hope for loads of it was that in Silhouette, the conductor looked a bit like Mel Brooks. And I kept thinking, yeah. hopefully at some point it will turn around, it'll Mel be Mel Brooks <laughs> and this film will just be better. <laughs> but it wasn't. The only people that I think could possibly enjoy this is someone in the 1940s who'd never seen a film before. Someone on Or indeed mu- a window. Yeah. yeah. Someone on Mushrooms, a massive classical music fan. Or, no, that's it, just those three. (laughs) It's just one long Disney wank, isn't it? Yeah. Basically. Do you think Walt was just rubbing hormonal gel into his arms and shoulders? I think he was having a lovely time with that gel, yeah. Wasn't the point of it like, hey guys, look what we can do? I think the point was partly... Like a showcase. I think there's quite a lot of showing off in Disney films. We've touched on this before so like with frozen it felt like they've gone do you know what we can do ice and snow really well now let's just do do a film around it (laughs) yeah i mean when they first learned to do hair they were like let's make tangles yeah let's have the most hair humanly possible and fur monsters inc but no complaints here apart from more women please i mean it probably served a purpose in the 1940s perhaps it did get some people into classical music maybe it did get some people into animation but the animation and classical music thing, we actually had a little chat about this when we were watching it. So one of my favourite cartoons, and it might seem weird saying that as a nearly 42-year-old adult woman, but it still stands, and that is the Cat Concerto, which is a Tom and Jerry film from 1946, where Tom is uh, playing the piano and he's doing a concert, and Jerry lives in the piano, and it's all just classical music and him trying to get Jerry while he plays the piano, and it is beautiful, and it won Oscars. And Disney must have been like, oh, yeah. Did Fantasia win any awards? Possibly. I mean, I should have Googled that, really. But, I mean, I just... I couldn't bring myself to Google it, to be honest. I was just... Also, I did go down a bit of a wormhole to try and find a fun fact about Deems Taylor. There aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> what score are you giving it, Hannah? I am going to give it two. What? I think it's unfair to judge it with for twenty first century. Yeah, it's of its time. Yeah, I mean, it must have been amazing when you first saw that in nineteen forty. I just like when the world was literally still in black and white, Jen. Other old films. I I, I just I it feels wrong to me that it's a wonderful life ruined what's he called Frank Capra's career and um and yet that it just feels wrong to me. 
Okay. Two what? Two tits Two pressed t- up against the screen. A pair of tits out of five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Squish tits. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.